The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is an absolute honor to welcome Bob Scowcroft. He is the former executive director for 20 years of the Organic Farming Research Foundation, and he has a wonderful history to talk to us about, about organic food and farming. Bob, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, I guess the first question I have to ask you is, why your dedication to organic food and farming? It's a fascinating tale in and of itself. i found that people come to organic from so many different perspectives. It might be family farmers. It might be local food. Uh, my own path was really environmental activism in general, specifically to uh, my first uh, more professional side of my career to, to ban Agent Orange, to stop the introduction of carcinogenic chemicals into the environment. And you worked for Friends of the Earth in that manner. That's correct. I was their first national organizer. Uh, started in 79. We wanted to ban 245T and 24D because of uh, the dioxin contaminants in them and started campaigns on spray drift and the classic letter writing to EPA and to Congress. Bob, even though I think we would have to have our heads in the sand if we didn't hear about toxic pesticides. But there is a large contingent of individuals who believe that we have to use these pesticides if we want to feed the world. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, <laughs> first I chuckle. Where does it say that we have to feed the world from California or Missouri or New Hampshire? I've always felt that the best contribution that we could make to feed the world is local production information matched against stopping war and ending dictatorships, where most of the food problems really lie. I think it's an incredible myth, and if you look at it from another perspective, an incredibly successful framing concept by the agro-industrial system. Yes, I face this so many times. I had been in California last spring, and I stopped at a fruit stand, and I asked the young man behind the counter if there were any organic fruit available. And he said, no, ma'am, we're proud not to be organic because we feed the world. And I, I had to stop and write that down because I wouldn't have believed that I heard it had I not written it down. So you think that all of these ideas that we need these toxic chemicals to feed the world really come from the people who are making and selling those compounds? Well, it's a a very successful uh, marketing concept. The last one they had was Better Living Through Chemistry. Right. Um, That got us into a little bit of trouble with groundwater and uh, certain uh, cancer clusters. But, but, you know, I want to turn it a little bit into, you know... uh, we have to keep all farmers farming. We don't have enough farmers. Right. Uh, if the scheme that the young man is buying into is feed the world, then we need to 
dig a little bit deeper. Uh, we need to, maybe it's trade. Uh, I, at least, have nothing against trading almonds and walnuts around the world and purchasing bananas and coffee beans in return. Right. Uh, there is a mimicry of nature here. Some whales travel thousands of miles. There's no reason why some of our food products shouldn't travel both ways as well. But the complete dependency on feed the world presumes that oil will always be cheap, presumes that there will always be uh, different modes of transportation that can get it there very quickly. And uh, I think there's a dialogue to be had with that kind of gentleman to just say, hey, you know, if you, let's just say you can't feed the world with your fruit. Um, where would you send it? And who would you feed? Um, would you want food stamps or certain new nutritional relationships and advocacy groups um, to buy your food uh, down the street where hunger is very evident. So as an organizer, I think those are conversations that we can have with most open-minded people. I think those are really refreshing comments to make. And I really like the way you describe the mimicry of nature and how, yeah, you know, that's that's something that we don't talk about a lot, about how things do travel globally. So we can feel good about having coffee and bananas and just make sure that we get them from an organic, fairly traded source. Yeah, I want my organic cereal with them, too. Exactly, an organic milk to go on top. And I, and I have to give credit. Uh, I'm influenced over time by uh, Fred Kirschman's writings. He's done a real good job of pointing out some of mm-hmm. so the, the other thing that Fred says that... Uh, has caught my attention is whenever the agro-industrial company says we have to feed the world, um, the one particularly famous one in St. Louis, mm-hmm. um, we should point out that once that company completes the feeding of the entire St. Louis population, then maybe we can get into a dialogue. St. Louis has the eighth largest hunger food stamp use in the nation. So uh, they've done a pretty lousy job of feeding their neighbors. Yeah, that's a really wonderful observation, Bob. You know, you were quoted in an article from the University of California, Santa Cruz. You said, one can't focus on the future until one has a solid grasp of the past. One of our collective failures has been the lack of attention paid to our written and oral history. And I I think that's one of the most important statements to repeat we have lost so much of our understanding of historical agricultural methods, and probably you'd like to see a resurgence of that knowledge. And certainly as our farmers are getting older, we better capture that information or we're going to lose it. Yeah, I um, I feel very strongly that there is a phenomenal amount of indigenous wisdom available to us that we have not intentionally gathered and organized relative to our regions, our farming regions in the country. Uh, But I'm not a Luddite. I think we have to embrace the most modern technology possible to uh, gather and disperse and dispense uh, like this radio program. This hopefully will be podcast and posted. And this is an embrace of the 22nd century of information sharing. But that stated, well, here, here's a tale. Here's an example. In the early days of OFR, if we got a grant request to um, do some soil research in Arizona, and luckily a contact that we had there uh, heard about it and 
connected with us and said, Does, you know, you don't need to fund that. And said, what? Said, well, from 1910 to 1928, the land-grant station in Arizona collected every soil sample and did fertility studies for the best cover cropping systems available, the best clover to provide the most nutrients to a biologically active soil. It's all in the dusty stacks of the University of Arizona. What you should really fund is a grad student to um, recover that, do a, a literature search on that, and publish the best research done 80 years ago. So that's Part of what led me to the, you know, we, we need radical librarians to go through all of our land grants to find uh, to that era of time when, you know, there was lead arsenic, the advocate put that down as a pesticide, and then there were other advocates that said, uh, you know, we really have to cover the soil. We have dust bowl situations with, with cover crops. So I think a lot of that, not all of it obviously, but a lot of that information is there. And uh, it's to our own discredit, to our own circles, that we're not crawling through the library or funding someone to do that for us. I totally agree with you. So let's talk historically about OFRF. You've been there for 20 years. I'm sure you've seen lots of change. You've funded a lot of organic research. Let's talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen, and then I want to also get into some of the research that really made you go, oh, wow, this is, this is fabulous. Probably the best thing is people don't talk about hippies and Birkenstocks anymore when they use the word organic. The challenges are the institutional head in the uh, sand, land-grant sand, for funding organic research. You know, there's now a number of oases around the U.S., but frankly, it is still very difficult to assemble a team to do organic research within an academic infrastructure. And OFRF has, through the entire time, been the only source of funding until the Federal Organic Research Act was passed and funded eight years ago. And it was OFRF and its staff Sensor Mark Lipson that wrote the language that got it funded in uh, two farm bills ago. So we really, in a merry band of 10 or 12 staff and uh, 15 board members at a time, have underwritten what is now all over $100 million a year in organic research funding and uh, information dissemination. Pretty yeah. cool for a, um, a troublemaker at Friends of the Earth right. 30 years ago. Well, I think what scares me, and again, this is looking historically about land-grant universities, is that you know they had been strongly funded with public dollars, and now they're pretty much privately funded, so the research is very much influenced by the funders, and that scares me. I don't. Does that scare scare you too? Well, you know, I, I'm not scared by much. I would say the flip side of that is. There's some young, tough women and men out there that are going to start organizing around repealing what's called the Bayh-Dole Act, Birch Bayh and Bob Dole. That is the act that allowed for the, for the privatization of the public resources. And I think it's uh, something actually that would cut across a number of political constituencies to point out how little money the corporations are investing to beg, borrow, and occasionally steal the public's resources. Mm -hmm. I'd love to be uh, 25 and fight off that advocacy initiative again. 
Gosh, I don't know. Now that you're in retirement, it seems like that might be a good path to follow. Well, I got another one that I'm going to um, focus on more, and that's the coordinated framework that allowed for uh, somewhere between four and ten agencies. It organized these agencies to look the other way in conflict to their own rules to allow the introduction of uh, genetically modified organisms into our food system. And I think the coordinated framework is uh, um, has rotted at its very foundation and is ripe for um, pulling down uh, the house of cards that it's built upon. That I am going to put some uh, time into. I'm so glad. If you're just joining us, we are talking with Bob Scowcroft. He is the former executive director for 20 years of the Organic Farming Research Foundation, and I might add that he's also the recipient of the prestigious Susty Award for Lifetime Achievement in Sustainable Agriculture from the Ecological Farming Association. Bob, earlier you had mentioned that you're not a Luddite and that you want to take historical knowledge and bring that forward with with the modern technology that we have today. And now you just mentioned but the issues regarding biotechnology. So let's use the second half to start off with a discussion about that. Can we have coexistence of biotechnology and organic farming? Boy, that is the question of the day. And uh, probably we'll see some, we'll be talking about this throughout the winter. I don't think it's inconceivable not ready to throw out the bathwater yet, but I'm having a very hard time coming to the place where I could endorse it, specifically around open the release of open-pollinated crops. I, don't, I just don't see how it works, how it can coexist. And I also think it's very important that we don't allow ourselves to have it be framed as organic versus GMO, because the rice growers already have discovered in Arkansas, Missouri, and uh, other parts of the South that the pollution of unreleased rice gene fragments in their rice supply lost them hundreds of millions of dollars of Korean and Japanese markets overnight. Uh, the wheat growers, uh, many conventional wheat growers, are extremely concerned about the release of GMO wheat and uh, the inability to save their seeds they've only done for five, ten thousand years around the world. So uh, this is disrupting a, a, a right-to-know, uh, a labeled a global trade environment for the benefit of a few. And within that context, there are organic producers that would also be affected. I refuse to actually, the more I think about it, to um, let anyone say this is organic against GMO. This is identity preserved. This is seed savers. This is commodity specific and it's organic all uh, in right now an ad hoc alliance to say you know, we need to contain this, we need to research this, we need health and safety protocol um, before we can even go further with the dialogue. Well, we're looking at alfalfa right now during the time of this conversation and that is an issue that concerns, of course, organic dairy farmers very much in terms of having seed dispersion. Do you have any thoughts on the alfalfa issue? Yeah, I don't see how it can coexist with conventional and organic alfalfa. But it seems like the USDA 
they had their environmental impact statement and it came out that there will not be a refusal to allow the GMO alfalfa from being planted. Is that your understanding as well? There's so much going on off the record and behind the scenes, it's hard to grab one moment's understanding versus another um, leaked or draft position statement. Sure, yeah. You know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the components of the conversation is to create a pool, a damage pool, a liability pool, that uh, patent holders would pay into. So if someone found their patented product in their product, they could apply to the pool and get funding back. Uh, I think that's a, a dangerous path to follow because the history of multinational corporations is just to include that in the cost of doing business. Right. Witness this little thing called an oil spill in the Gulf. Right. You know, if you really look at a $50 billion, I mean, that's some of the oil companies to make that in a quarter. Sure. Or a year. Right. So, I, you know, I'm, I don't think we should uh, be bought off that way. I'm sure that you've seen some really great research over the past 20 years that you've been with OFRF. And I want to give you a chance to talk about some of the research that you're most proud of. But I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about the five-year organic seed research program where you're working with Matt Dillon's Organic Seed Alliance and the Center for Food Safety. So historically, let's talk about research that you've seen, and then let's also talk about something that's going on right now. Well, uh, I have 300 best friends that are OFRF research grants. So picking uh, three out of those would get me in trouble with 297 others. Sure. Um, you know, we've done uh, some incredible seed research, incredible dairy, funded some incredible dairy research, uh, fantastic apple research. Uh, the end results of that showed up on the cover of uh, Nature, you know, some prestigious journal. But, you know, for me, I'll leave it that it wasn't just the research that we later discovered was beneficial. It was the investment in people who over the last 15 years became assistant professors, became tenured professors, one became a dean, that were original OFR grant recipients that took the passion and the belief into entire departmental oases. So, you know, John Reagan Old in Washington State University and Nancy Kramer in North Carolina State. Uh, there's been some in Arkansas, some in Wisconsin. I just broke my rule, actually. I'll get in trouble with 298 of <laughs> their names. But it, you really have to look at it as a systems approach. As a matter of fact, you know, we probably had a 1,000 applicants that didn't get funded. Mm. The very fact that they went out to family farmers, took their ideas, listed them as advisors, and submitted proposals to us generated the kind of indigenous conversations that are uh, incredibly valued. Uh, valuable and very difficult to measure. We've set organic research and information exchange dialogues in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, how cool is that? Absolutely. Nothing like that existed before OFR was, was founded um, on a national scale. There are a lot of certification groups in the NOFAs, New England, that were doing it at farmers' conferences and retreats and little farm tours. Uh, we framed it and brought it to the nation, and um, we have a lot to be proud of. Do you want to talk a little bit about the five-year organic seed research program? Well, I think, you know, what's happening here and what the next leadership team uh, will be engaged in 
is looking at um, integrated systems among our own organizations, finding out the multiple benefits of organic production, whether it's carbon sequestration or water reduction, but also to focus on one of the least served areas within organic, and that is organic seed research and production. What we've discovered is that the seed system is in the nation's seed system in general, public breeding program in general, is in dire straits. And that um, when there are organic seeds available, they usually come from a hybridized system or an untreated seed system. And what we really want to do is to regain the grassroots initiative and fund that initiative to really look at seeds that grow in particular environments, particular soils, indigenous to regions and populations, and not only fund that as a grant maker, but to work with our colleagues in the Seed Alliance to advocate for it sub-regionally. And then finally, our last partner to protect the integrity of organic seeds, and that's the Center for Food Safety, with their advocacy work and, when needed, confrontational litigation. So I think it's, uh, it's the brilliance of the Cliff Bar Family Foundation that brought us all together and funded us, uh, but it's also now the collaboration the NGO collaboration using our resources incredibly frugally to get the biggest bang out of the wisest dollar. You know, I heard Kathleen Merrigan speak at the Farm Aid concert in St. Louis in 2009, and she said it's going to take a lot to turn this big industrial agricultural ship around. What do you think it's going to take to turn it around? Passion, advocacy, communication, great music, <laughs> good food, and breaking bread together with your family for the next 30 years. Yeah. You know, I want to make sure that you know we have, a, we have several minutes left, and I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to let our listeners know what you've learned in the gosh, 20-plus years, really, that you've been working to provide healthier food and farming methods. Do you have any gems that you want to leave us with? Well, you know, one that we started at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, and how I got into this and fighting these pesticides, um, maybe it's a perfect circle to close, is that, um, you know, I was six months into it. I was uh, seven days a week, you know, uh, on the path to burnout, really, in the Within those first few months, two organic family farmers tracked me down and said, we've never heard of an environmentalist care about farming. Never. And um, But we got one problem with you, buddy. You're going to ban these pesticides. You know there's 7,000 pesticides out there? You believe in reincarnation? You know, it's going to take lifetime. Why the hell don't you um, be for something? It just makes you feel better. You should re- really be for organic family farming. And you'll eat better, you'll feel better, and you'll get rid of 7,000 chemicals at the same time. I think about that almost every week, um, those two farmers, and what they brought to me. And I think it's the, there's, you know, there's a joy to really being for something, to show the examples of now almost 21,000 organic farmers around the country that really, um, by and large, take great pleasure of what they do. They're optimists about their results of what they do. It doesn't mean they don't have bad weather and bad seasons, and in 
some cases, farm failures for um, both organic or other reasons. But what it does mean is that they devoted their day, week, and their family's life towards something really positive for the environment and for the community around them. And I think uh, my battery doesn't even need recharging because I've run on that thought for 32 years. That's the message uh, your listeners should try to go away with. Being against something, being negative all the time starts to eat away at you. Being for something, having the solution, being solution-based has really helped me go go the distance. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you in the next, say, year to three years ahead? Well, there's a, there's a regenerative period I really need to undergo um, at home. Uh, I want to recalibrate some time. We have a special needs adult son and the healthy agency that um, is assisting us with his care. Um, learn how to raise funds. Uh, we're in a financial meltdown, everyone knows here, so I'm going to put some time into that. I'm very passionate about organic history, so uh, I did my own oral history, and I'm kind of traveling around asking my peers who are 50, 60, 70 whether they've kept all their papers, and if they haven't, I'll get a storage locker shipped to me. Um, but that, uh, I think I actually have set off now four or five other initiatives within regions around the country to gather all the 60s, 70s, and 80s paperwork that people have. Um, people want me to write a book and tell some funny stories. I have a panic attack when I look at a blank screen to write a memo, so the thought of a book um, is easily postponed. And then I'm going to sit on a couple of advisory boards and uh, do some deep reading on um, the coordinated framework and uh, genetically modified organisms and work on what we all should be for relative to the use of technology and not against. Well, Bob, I want to thank you so much for your time and your energy and your dedication to organic food and farming. I want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Bob Scowcroft. He is the executive director, or should I say former executive director for 20 years of the Organic Farming Research Foundation. And after speaking with you, I realized just how much we have to be grateful for, for OFRF. So thank you very much. And I wish you the best of health and the best of luck. And I, I can't wait to read what you come up with next. I'm anxious to read the agricultural histories. I think this, I think you've really tapped on a very key component of, of the knowledge base we need. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Bob, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, let's uh, keep working together. Sounds good.